Just a couple of things I wanted to chime in on about VBS before uh, we get into uh, the message. Um, as the pastor of the church, one of the things that I, I cannot express how thankful and impressed I am that we had over 100 volunteers for VBS. I mean, that is just absolutely incredible. Because, you know, if you've ever been a part of a VBS and... And, and, and this has certainly happened for us in the past. If one or two people were out, it just kind of put a lot of other people in, in some, uh, you know, predicaments, you know, being shorthanded. Uh, if somebody was out, somebody else was able to step in. So uh, personally, you know, from me to all of you that are volunteers, I thank you for all the commitment, all the work that you put in, all the time you put in this week. It would not have been the week that it was uh, without everything that, that you did. Um, and, I, and I will say this, even though like some of our VBS people aren't here, this was like the first year, like I haven't had something sprayed on me, dropped on me, that I haven't been tied down to something, strapped onto something, uh, you know, in a very long time. And I guess they've run out of diabolical, sadistic things to do to me. <laughs> you know, don't give them any ideas. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, you know... I, and I say all that to say because usually getting to do stuff to me is one of their motivators for the kids to empty out their piggy banks. To see them get that excited about providing 16,000 meals was just absolutely awesome to see how excited they got that they did that together. I mean, that was, that was an absolutely uh, amazing blessing to see. Parents. Wherever your kids are keeping their change, please run it through the dishwasher. <laughs> I saw more colors, more coins stuck together, sticking to fingers. I mean, I, I don't know wh what your kids are doing with their change, but maybe you should check it. <laughs> I now know why they said there was a coin shortage a couple of years ago. Because I'm telling you, all the, all the coins that were collected, I mean, I think it was 1,246 pounds. I, I don't know, but it was, it was a lot. So uh, parents, volunteers, kids, I mean, just th that's just my, my way of saying what a great, great week um, that, that we've had. So uh, last week, Pastor Adam kicked off our VBS week um, talking about the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And one of the things that was a part of this VBS was the kids diving into the importance and the, and the symbolism and the necessity that as a believer that we are to put on the armor of God, that that is something we, we, um, we need to have as a part of our life in Christ as we live in this world. And, and um, as I thought about kind of like how to wrap this week up, I wanted to kind of connect something to what Pastor Adam talked about last week because he, he shared these verses from Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against all the rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly Places. Uh, I'm not going to rehash a lot of what Adam said because you can go back and listen to last week's message because he did a great job 
unpacking the importance of the armor and each piece of the armor, but this is kind of what I wanted to spring off of, is this understanding that, uh, that the battles that we face as followers of Christ are not earthly battles. The challenges, the struggles, what we see going on in the world, what we encounter as being a part of the world are not earthly battles. They, are, they, they originate in the spiritual realm. And if we are to, uh, put, uh, to, to recognize the importance and the necessity of the armor of God, we also have to have a recognition of just exactly what this flesh, uh, th this, this um, evil ruler, authorities, these spiritual battles originate and where they come from. So to understand the armor of God, it's so important for us to understand who and what we are up against. Now, Adam mentioned, uh, referenced in his message, John 10, 10, he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have a rich and satisfying life, a full life, abundant life, whatever translation you have. And so for us to understand this thief and what we're up against as it relates to the work of this thief is incredibly important for us to live with that recognition. One of the reasons that is so important is let's be honest with ourselves. We get into our routines, uh, we, you know, we, we get up at the same time, we get the kids ready, we go to work, we, we pick up the kids, we do dinner, we go to practices, we come home, you know, we just kind of get into these routines and we can lose that recognition, that awareness that when we've given our lives to Christ, we're now a part of a spiritual world and a physical world. And there's a lot of things that we may chalk up to, uh, to coincidence. There's a lot of things that we may chalk up to just somebody having it out for me. There may be things that we just say this is a part of life, when in actuality, we are engaged in spiritual battles. Paul was writing this to a relatively healthy church in Ephesus, wanting to make sure they were aware that even though things were going well for them, they were a healthy church. They were experiencing uh, unity. They were experiencing effectiveness in reaching people for Christ. Paul is reminding them that the, the battle is of the spiritual nature. It's of a spiritual nature. And then um, for us to recognize, I mean, let me say it this way, for Jesus to say, there's this thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When Jesus gives attention to that, we need to pay attention to that. Because he's the son of God in the flesh. He's teaching about the ways of the father, the ways of the kingdom of God. And when he says, you need to be aware of the difference between a thief and me. This thief that will still kill and destroy versus me, who's come to give you a rich and satisfying life. And to understand a little bit more about what we're up against, we go to the book of Isaiah, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, who is talking about this, and, and, and biblical scholars have looked at this, these particular verses for, uh, for generations as one of those verses that gives us a glimpse into the mindset that led to this angelic being falling from heaven, taking a certain number of angels with him, and creates what we know to be Satan and the legion of demons. So there's this origination of where this comes from. Isaiah writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, 
I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. That right there is, a, is, is just the tip of the iceberg on how Satan desires to work in all of us because the same thing he tried to do by putting himself above God as the creator of the universe. He's a created being who tried to set himself above God, who's the creator of everything, is the same type of temptation that Satan does with us. Is that I'm going to be the God of my own life. I'm going to put myself on the throne. I'm going to put myself in a place where nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it how I want to do it. I'm going to be the God of my own life. And that is exactly how Satan works in us. This is the same one Jesus is saying is the thief. And so as a result of his own rebellion against God, Satan uses tactics to tempt us to do very similar things. And he knows exactly where we, we are weak. He knows exactly where he can begin to, to work in us and speak lies and deception into our mind, into our heart. We see that throughout the biblical record, whether it was Job's health, David's pride, Judas's greed. It doesn't matter uh, who that person is. Satan knows exactly where we are weak. And the way that he will work in us is to say, this is something you you need to take care of. This is something you need to do. Who is to tell you that you can't do X, Y, or Z? And if we really want to dig deeper into understanding the work of this thief, we go to Matthew chapter 4 and we look at the temptation of Jesus. Because, in the will, uh, because Jesus in the wilderness gives us a view of how Satan will oftentimes work to tempt us. And so in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records it that Jesus was about to enter his public ministry. He's about to come into the forefront uh, publicly. But before that, he's got to go out into the wilderness and be tempted, I mean, be, be isolated and alone and not eating for 40 days. Almost sounds like an episode of Naked and Afraid. Almost. And it says that at the end of that 40 days, here is, here is Satan, and, he, and I'm going to read you these temptations that he gives Jesus. The first one is in Matthew 4, 3. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now imagine you haven't eaten for 40 days. You're weak, you're probably exhausted, and you're no doubt hungry. How tempting of an offer is this? Because Satan knew Jesus had the power, uh, because he was the Son of God, to speak to a rock and it turned into a loaf of bread. If you've got that kind of power, how tempting would that be? I mean, and some of us, I mean, we couldn't even go 40 days without eating. If I had that kind of power, I'd have a T-bone steak in the next minute. Come on now, some of you would too. But Satan knew that Jesus was compromised physically because of the time he had been in the wilderness, the time he had been without food. So it's a very tempting offer. And then here's the second temptation. If you're the son of God, jump off because he took him up to the, to the wall of the temple 
And he said, uh, he said, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So Satan's very sly here. He's using prophecies about Jesus that Jesus would be looked after as the Son of God because he had a mission given to him by God. And until he got to the penultimate point of that mission, which was the cross, that he would be protected. So again, here's somewhere that, that, that he could have manipulated Jesus into thinking something that would have been very easy to do. And how many times do we sometimes think, hmm, you know, I'm in a position that I'm, I'm relatively protected here. I mean, is really anybody going to know if I do this? Is anybody really going to know if I do that? I mean, if I kind of fudge a little bit over here, I mean, you know, I'm probably insulated enough that it really won't affect me or I won't get caught. That's kind of the temptation that we can deal with. And then here's the third one. He takes Jesus up on top of a mountain shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, the devil took him to the peak of the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Now here is Satan, who's fallen from heaven, offering the Son of God in the flesh earthly kingdoms. Not very smart. Not in this regard because, I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He, he, he will sit at the right hand of the Father. He will, he will be able to command whatever God gives him the authority to command. He would settle if he gave in to this temptation. And how often do the temptations that the, that the devil brings to us leads us to settle instead of waiting for God to do what God can do and provide and do and bless and honor and answer. How many times do we settle? And that's what Satan was tempting Jesus. So really, we could boil it down to, to three ways, three places that, that Satan will really work to tempt us if we're not aware of it. Pleasure. Now, let me say this. Food is a necessity. Jesus was hungry. He'd been without food for 40 days. You know, but at some point... When we are blessed people, we start eating, living to eat instead of eating to live. I mean, that's one of the things about our society is like, you know, when, we have, when we're well off. But, but the point is, anything that God has given us that can be pleasurable can be taken too far. Anything can be taken outside of God's design and it, be, and it be manipulated in ways that become selfish and self-seeking rather than the way God designed it to be. You know, and that doesn't matter if it's food, if it's substances, if it's sexual activity. I mean, the, the, the list can go so far, you know, that anything God has designed and, and, and to, to function in a certain way can be pushed to the limit or pushed outside of God's boundaries, and those pleasures become sinful. They become outside of God's order, and that's what Satan will tempt us to do. Moms, and I'm not saying that dads don't do this, but I think moms in particular, like how often do you worry about your child's protection? Like, you know, are, are they, are they going to be safe? Are they going to be taken care of? Are they going to be in harm's way? Is something going to happen to them when I'm not there? 
to be able to intervene or to help or to shelter or to protect. And oftentimes that worry leads us away from faith, away from trust, and away from, uh, away from really placing our kids in the hands of our Heavenly Father. And then who is not potentially swayed by the temptation of power? There's just something about us in, in humanity that, that we can get drunk on power really, really quick. If we think we have people that we can order, that we can control, that we can make them subject, I mean, there's just something that feeds our fleshly ego when we have the potential for power. That's one of the reasons apprenticeships and, and starting at the bottom of, of the ladder, so to speak, is so important. If you're ever in an interview and somebody talks about wanting to be in power, but they don't have experience, they don't know the deception of power. You know, oftentimes we have to learn things the hard way for us to really understand how to best handle this, this, uh, th these opportunities for power. Now, I want, I want to speak to, just for a few minutes, about three areas I really think we need to be aware of as it relates to the temptations of Satan. Because if we're really going to recognize the spiritual battle, if we're going to adequately use the armor of God in our spiritual lives, we really need to have a recognition of exactly how Satan will tempt us. And the first one really gets at the heart of any sin whatsoever, but really to recognize when we're tempted to put ourselves ahead of anybody else, that should be our number one tip that we're being tempted by Satan. If you've ever thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to do what I want to do. I don't care what somebody thinks. I don't care what somebody says. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That is a very dangerous temptation. And the less anchored we are spiritually, the more likely we are to give in to those types of temptations. One of the uh, teachers that I had in my college Sunday school class years ago would talk about this consistently, and it stuck with me uh, for years. And it's, and it's easy to forget the priority of where things need to be in our lives as a Christian. I'm not talking about a non-Christian. I'm talking about a Christian. If you have given your life to Christ, you profess Jesus as your Savior, there needs to be a certain priority to things, prioritization of things in your life. And here's the first one. God comes first. I mean, that kind of sounds like a no-brainer, but even we as believers sometimes don't put God first. We can easily put ourselves ahead of what God would desire or what God's will is. If you're married, your spouse is your second priority. Most of the time when couples come to me for pastoral counseling, they never come to me until they're in crisis mode. And more times than not, the reason they're in crisis mode is one of those uh, partners in that marriage have not been putting their spouse first. They have allowed their priorities to get so skewed, and that partner knows that they are not a priority of their spouse. If you have kids, they are number three. God first, spouse second, children third. I have seen parents over the years who would put their children at a higher priority than their spouse. 
And that is a subtle temptation to be aware of because if Satan can undermine your relationship, it weakens your ability to effectively parent. God, spouse, kids, work is your fourth priority. And we're all tempted at times to put work ahead of our, of our important relationships. I mean, you don't know what demands I'm under. You don't know what the boss is asking of me. I want to I get that next promotion so we can do X, Y, or Z. And when we put work ahead of kids or work ahead of spouse or work ahead of, of, of God, there's a reason Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill. Because when we misalign our priorities as a believer, chaos will follow. Conflict will follow. A lack of peace is going to happen when those priorities are not in their proper place. And one of the ways that Satan will work is he will always be tempting us to misplace our priorities. And then whatever else you're doing in your life, number five, number six, number seven, number eight, they will find where their proper placement is if one, two, three, and four are where they should be. If, if something that's not as important as God, not as important as your spouse, not as important as your kids, not as important as your, as, as your job starts to creep into the top four, pay attention to that. Because something's gotten out of alignment. And it can be very subtle, and we can be way down the road of misalignment of priorities before we even recognize it. Here's another one that I think we really need to be aware of, and that's unforgiveness. Now, there's a lot of ways and a lot of directions that we can go with unforgiveness, but I just want to zero in on unforgiveness in this regard. Satan knows better than we do if he can undermine the unity of a church, then the church's mission is compromised. And there is no quicker way to undermine the unity and the mission of a church than for people in the church to hold grudges against each other. I'm going to use Vacation Bible School as an example. It was absolutely chaos around here for five nights in a row. It was. I mean, you don't put 150 kids in this, in this building, especially when it rained all but five minutes of the week. And every time it was time to switch stations, I mean, the hallways are packed and the leaders are trying to corral kids and wait a minute, you're not over here and get your finger out of your nose and quit punching on somebody and quit tackling people you don't know and get that out of your mouth. You know, you see that stuff, you know, and, and all of, you know, the, the adults are moving everywhere. The kids are everywhere. People are getting tired as we go through the week. People don't know where they're supposed to be and the schedule's gotten changed and I don't know. Things are going to get said that are going to ruffle somebody's feathers. Not because somebody meant to, but because they're human. And how many times does somebody say something in a way that just doesn't set right and we carry a grudge against that person till, till Jesus comes back? And if we have the opportunity to sit in a small group with that person, serve in a ministry with that person, we're going to find any way we can to avoid it because they said something that didn't set well with me and I refuse to let it go. And I'm not talking about like somebody lying about you, gossiping about you, violating trust, physically harming. I'm not talking about those things because that's a whole different part of the conversation. I'm just talking about those things that when you put enough people in the room, somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. 
And when we carry those grudges, it undermines the unity of church and the mission of the church to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share Jesus with those who are far from God and can't figure out why life's not making sense. One of the things I want to encourage you is if you got your feathers ruffled by somebody at church, what have you got to do to work through it and let it go? Lay it down. Don't let it stand in the way. Don't let it be something that you carry and fester and fester and fester. Because here's what happens. One offense leads to a second, leads to a third, leads to a fourth, leads to a fifth. Ten years later, your heart is harder than granite because you've carried grudges that you weren't willing to let go. And if there's ever something that keeps coming to your mind, like, I can't believe they said that, I can't believe they did that, shouldn't they know better, Satan is really working on you to try to hold a grudge and break down a certain level of unity within the church. And we must be aware of it. We must recognize that. The third thing that we need to really be aware of in our life as a, follow, as a follower of Christ and as people who participate in this thing called church is apathy. Is apathy. This is a dangerous place to get to as a human being. Very dangerous place to get to. When we become apathetic, we don't get mo- our heart isn't moved by the things that God says should move us. Like when there's sin and brokenness and, and, and evil and death and, 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 and loneliness and despair, those things don't move us, we may very well have entered into a place of being apathetic. When, when we are no longer moved by the, by, the, by the sinfulness of the world, we're no longer moved by the fact that people are far from God and on a pathway to hell, then we may very well have become apathetic. Where does apathy come from? Unforgiveness? Discouragement? Disillusionment? Frustration? Fatigue? and even unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Because look, when we're living in sin, we are the focus of our own universe. And when I'm the focus of my universe, what happens to other people doesn't really move me because all I'm worried about is myself. And that's why apathy is something we have to guard against. Because look, as much as we get tired of the onslaught of society that pushes us to continually accept more egregious sins... We can't get apathetic. We have to stay strong and stand strong on what God says we are to be as a church. A place of refuge, a place of discovery, a place of redemption, a place of renewal, a place where people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to guard against apathy. Because if if Satan can get us to a place that we just don't care, then he's won that battle. Nothing ever changed the world from apathetic people. No apathetic people have ever changed the world. You change the world because something's broken your heart. You care about something deeply. It moves you. It challenges you. It stretches you. And that's why we have to guard against 
apathy. In just a couple of minutes that we have left, let me say this. We cannot fight spiritual battles with earthly weapons. Your intelligence, your talent, your abilities, your education, um, your, 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 your giftedness, those things are not what is going to stand up against spiritual battles. You can reason with somebody, and that person's totally unreasonable because they're in spiritual darkness. You can be incredibly talented in organization or leadership, uh, what, a communication, whatever it may be, but until, until, you, until we all recognize that we are involved in spiritual battles, as Paul says, we are going to continue to try to fight spiritual battles with earthly means. And we aren't designed to do it that way. So what are some of those spiritual tools that we need for spiritual battle? Obviously, God's Word. I mean, the, the, the Bible is God's Word. There is power in God's Word. His Spirit dwells in that Word. And when we open it and we know it, it speaks to us, it reminds us, it challenges us, it encourages us. Listen to Jesus' responses of those three temptations. The first one, when Satan said, turn the rocks into loaves of bread, Jesus said, no, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responded Satan's temptation with scripture. Here's the second one. Uh, when he tempted him to throw himself down and the angels would protect him, the scriptures say, you must not test the Lord your God. Jesus said, the scriptures said... And then when he's tempted to bow down and worship Satan and Satan give him the entire world, he says, get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus used the word of God to counter the temptations of Satan. And he'll do the same thing with you. The more you know of God's word, the more able you are to, to resist and withstand the temptations of the one Jesus called the thief. Prayer. Man, we get so busy, we get so caught up in life that, 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 that prayer is easy to forget to do in our life. Easy to not make it a priority, easy to not do it. But when we spend time in the presence of God, his spirit brings us what we need. Strength, peace, contentment. Those things that we wrestle with in this world that we can't find anywhere else. Worship is a spiritual tool. We talked about, you know, for four weeks about the importance and the power of worship. Because look, when the people of God come together and collectively lift up our creator God, the Alpha, the Omega, the, the beginning, the, the end, Savior of the world, the giver of all good things. When we collectively worship him, uh, we, we sense we experience the power of his presence. And we can come in here discouraged and leave encouraged. We can come in here deflated and we can, and we can leave strengthened. We can come in here weak and we can leave with this sense of knowing that God is with us, that we are not alone, we are not fighting our battles alone, we are not in this life alone. Worship is such a spiritual tool. And then there's something to be said for just simply sacrificing something of me for the sake of someone else. 
Those of you that volunteered, you sacrificed all week long. You gave up routines. You gave up you time. You gave up time, uh, you know, to, to, to watch a show that you liked. I mean, you gave up a lot of things this week. And because you sacrificed, more than likely, God spoke to you this week. God showed you something. God revealed something to you. When we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of someone else, there is spiritual power in that because that's how we're designed to live. And oftentimes, and, I, and I've, I've, I've especially seen this in, in, uh, in our grief share support groups, that some of the ones that come into grief share and they're just, they're, they're just so broken by the loss that they've had, but at some point when they start doing something for someone else, they start to come out of that darkness. They start to come out of that cloud that grief will hang over you. And there's a lot of other ways that we see that, not just with grieving people, but when you give yourself away to others, there's something powerful that happens. Parents, grandparents, this week our kids heard the importance of the armor of God. But it will not stay important to them if it's not important to you. Model it. Show your kids how you are trying to live out and wear the armor of God because if it's not a priority to you, eventually it won't be to them either. And be aware of how Satan is trying to tear down your resolve, tear down your willingness to hold firm to what you know to be true. Let your kids see you wrestle with people uh, tempting, uh, tempting you to compromise and you standing firm. Even if it costs you something, let them see you stand firm on God and his word and his truth. Let them see how you uh, came through a season of testing and how God brings you through and blesses because of your faithfulness. To recognize how our thief will try to destroy us gives us that much uh, clearer of an idea of what he's doing, how he tries to go about it, and how we can resist so that you experience the life that Jesus promised, rich, full, and satisfying. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for each one that's here. I thank you for the week that that we've been able to pour in and, and invest in and plant seeds in kids and their families and our community. But Lord, we also are fully aware that there is much that happens on a daily basis that we're not even aware of spiritually. God, bring it, open our eyes and our heart to hear, to see, to recognize the ways in which we are tempted so that we can withstand the one who seeks to kill and destroy. Lord, you know that we can't do it on our own. You know that. You provided for us the Holy Spirit to give us the strength, the wisdom, the discernment that we need to know where we are being tempted. Father, that we would continually look to you as our guide, as our source, as our supply, for everything that we need on this earth. Lord, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you provide what we need. Lord, that we would be faithful to you 
in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.